I am so thrilled to be here with David and Jessica Oyelowo, who are our wonderful friends and who uh, uh, I had the privilege of interviewing for the Royal Albert Hall not that long ago. Uh, they're both actors, they've been in numerous films, maybe David's best known for Selma, United Kingdom, The Butler, but also all sorts of other things like Spooks and Les Mis, not only films of producing. And Jessica, I counted up, I think, Jessica, that you've done 10 films, um, TV, stage, um, so uh, both both actors. So let's, let's start at the very beginning. Um, how you guys met and your connection with HDB. Well, we were babies when we met in the National Youth Music Theatre when we were 17 and 18, and we were the only Christians in the uh, theatre group that we were in, so we became buddies. Um, and eventually, two years later, I moved to London after leaving school and to pursue acting, and David was my best friend in London. I didn't know many people, to be honest. And, uh, that makes you sound like you were desperate. Yeah, I'm so totally desperate. So I hung out with him because there was no <laughs> oh one. Else. Um, <laughs> but it it became, quickly became a it was a very very healthy, lovely friendship that we were like, hang on a minute, what's wrong with today? Um, and we realised that we had fallen in love. And you were teenagers, seventeen and eighteen. When we first met, a couple of years later, we started dating, very quickly got engaged um, when I was 19, I think, and you were 21. And we went to HTV's uh, marriage course you did to learn how to marry. Nikki and Silla Lee. Yeah. yeah. And Back you did Alpha? Jesse, you did Alpha. Alpha. Yeah. yeah um, the Holy Spirit that... weekend. Jessica, you had a... Yeah, I think, was it in Eastbourne? back then, went down to Eastbourne for the weekend and Holy Spirit weekend, they're just saying, you know, you just have to receive the gift of tongues. And I was like, hmm, all right then. And just started speaking in tongues and literally haven't stopped since. <laughs> David, your dad and where you'd lived, because you lived partly in London, hadn't you, partly in Nigeria. Yeah, yeah, I was born in the UK, but lived in Nigeria from the age of six to 13. And then we moved back to the UK uh, we're in London um, up until Jess and I got married um, and then moved to Brighton uh, before we then moved here to LA. Uh, but yeah, my dad now lives with us. He's downstairs as, as we speak. Um, and um, even though, yes, we did fall in love young. And what Jess meant by what's wrong with today is that any day that I wasn't in her day was a bad day which is understandable. Um, and, um, but I remember introducing Jess to my dad uh, as someone who I was um, really thinking about spending the rest of my life with. And he actually said to me, you do know that one day she's going to wake up and realize you are black, <laughs> um, which uh, I did know that you knew that I was black, but that was, <laughs> that was a reflection of, he had suffered a lot of racism in oh. the UK in the late 60s and 70s when he first moved there. Um, and I think he was projecting um, of, in terms of what he thought our marriage might be and, and you know, whether you would stay with me. Um, and he hadn't met my family. He yeah. didn't realize that they would truly love David as their son. 
Um, and he had seen a lot of his friends marry English girls in the 60s and they all got divorced because the difference between the black experience in the UK and the white experience in the UK is stark. But dad had experienced a lot of racism. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was, it was, it was bad. I mean, he had hot coffee thrown at him. He was spat at. He couldn't find a place to rent because, you know, people basically didn't want to rent to black people. This is in the late 60s, early 70s. Um, but he always would tell these stories with such, such a lack of bitterness that I didn't really, I didn't really internalize them as really bad things that had happened to him. And they were sort of things that had happened in the past. Um, but that I think is why it was so shocking recently. My, my brother's a healthcare professional in the UK and in the wake of Brexit, he, he would text me here in LA saying, wow, I was just on the train. And a group of people said, go back to where you came from. Uh, which is the kind of language I associated with back in the day when my dad was experiencing this stuff. So it's sort of, you know, the last few years and months have, have sort of brought up all this um, really tough stuff that, to be honest, we, we thought we had moved on from. But you had, you two had an experience on the tube, didn't you? It involved Jess. Uh, who's going to tell the story? Because I, <laughs> I, I, I couldn't possibly tell the story because I'm still shocked that it actually happened. <laughs> Go on, go on. Just tell us well, racism is real, but my way of dealing with it at that point was uh, there were three guys. They, I'm not sure where they were from. I don't, I don't know. But they were making very rude gestures about the fact that we were together. On the tube. On the, we were on the tube. In the same carriage, nowhere to go. And um, there was a guy sitting opposite us who was noticing everything that they were doing. We didn't notice. We were just like chatting to each other and hadn't seen what was happening. This guy got very upset for us and drew our attention to these guys who then, when we got off the tube, chased us off the tube and were about to beat David up. And I think we were engaged at that point. Yeah. And I saw red, I was so angry that people could be that uh, racist, that cruel, that unkind, that I, I just kind of jumped in between them, got in their faces and went, don't you touch him, don't you touch him. And they, they were so shocked. It was like their mother had suddenly manifested into their faces. They went, and ran away. It was not like <laughs> their mother at all. It was like a 20 foot grizzly bear had manifested in front of them. It, it, you have to picture this in a tube tunnel with, and you were, you were all 19. of 19 at the time. And she went, don't you! <laughs> like that, which echoed through the whole tube. And not only were they shocked, but I was also like... <laughs> <laughs> and then, uh, David, the films, some of those early films that you were involved in were very much on this subject. Lincoln, um, The Butler. Uh, just say, say a little bit about that, because um, there, there was a link between... Selma, of course, everybody knows... Uh, uh, about that, um, but the, there's a link between that film and Lincoln. Yeah, this has been a theme in our marriage, whether it be a United Kingdom, which was about an interracial uh, marriage between Sorette Karma and Ruth Williams. It happened 70 years ago that had huge ramifications, both for the UK and, and, and Botswana, or doing Selma, as, as you mentioned, or, or indeed 
Lincoln. But, you know, one of the extraordinary things about this sort of journey from, from when we first moved to LA to me playing uh, Dr. King in Selma were these films I did about basically 150 years of race in, in, in America from Lincoln to the Butler to Red Tails to The Help um, culminating in Selma, but particularly poignant was in Lincoln. I played a Unionist soldier who in 1865 was um, asking the president, as played by Daniel Day-Lewis, when Black people will be afforded the right to vote. And it was a sort of a crazy thing that 19 presidents later, 100 years later, in 1965, in the film Selma, playing Dr. King, I was asking the very same question of another president um, as a character I was playing as Dr. King, asking Lyndon Johnson, when will Black people get the vote? And, you know, that in and of itself is just kind of epitomizes how long this struggle for equality, the struggle for racial justice has been going on, that you could have one actor playing two different characters a hundred years apart, asking the very same question of different presidents. And so, you know, we just kind of, we, we feel, I don't know, we feel called to something that God is doing regardless of whether we like it or not, that that, that is, it's part of our marriage, whether we like it or not. It's part of us being here in America at this inflection point when it comes to race, it's in our work. And it's uh, sort of being reflected in our work in ways that we couldn't have anticipated. Mm. It was very much a sense of, of uh, you know, there was a day when God called you to play, you, you sensed the spirit of God saying to you, you are going to play Dr. Martin Luther King. Well, you were there for that. I was there for that. It, it was two months after we had moved, emigrated, brought everything over here, including the children we already had. Just like we moved here because we were obeying him. And two months later, David receives the Selma script during a time of prayer and fasting and read the script and had this incredibly strong knowing that he was going to play Martin Luther King in the film Selma. And that was on July 24th, 2007. He didn't play the role until he finished shooting in July, 2014, seven years later. There's a, the theme of this is we, okay, Lord, you say it, you're going to do it, but we're just going to trust you and obey you through the process of it. And um, we had this remarkable time where David wrote the, this knowledge down in a journal, which we have. And um, seven years later, after many ups and downs, he actually played the role that God said he was going to play. And again, uh, Dave, uh, uh, the, there were similarities for you because uh, Sarette Takama was, a, was a, uh, a prince and you're a prince. I am a prince, but it's, it's a bit of a cheat, Nikki. <laughs> no, I'm a princess, he's a prince. It's, a bit, it's a bit like <laughs> being the Prince of Islington. It's not, it's not, it's not really quite, quite what we understand as being a prince. But yes, my grandfather was the king of a part of Western Nigeria called Awe. Um, and so, Oyelowo actually means 
Um, the king deserves respect. It's reflected in the name. Um, yes, Jess is a princess, regardless of whether she married me or not. But, uh, <laughs> but, but yes, that is, that, is, that is the case. But more, per it's a love story. Yeah, it was, it was, but also, you know, for me as a, as, a, as a black person, one of the reasons I really wanted to see that story come to fruition is you so rarely get to see black characters, African characters, um, where they are aspirational, inspirational leaders who did positive things that affected the world in an indisputable way. So often the representation, especially historically or anything that is a period drama, is it's black people being done to rather than them being the ones who are creating positive change. And to be perfectly honest, I had just never seen a character like Soete Kama on film. And I know that part of what we have been put here to do is to create those images, to create those opportunities, um, because the cultural impact of film and television is, is indisputable. Um, it, it, it affects the way we think about people and places we don't know or understand. Uh, it's, it's educational. Um, and you know, it, it, it is the tool that Christ used enormously, not te television and film, but story. You know, the parables are all stories. You know, the Bible is a great big um, story that we delve into to understand the heart of God. And so it was actually something I struggled with when, when we felt called to be here, because I thought, you know, because we feel like we're here as missionaries, but you think of being in Tibet as a, as a, as a missionary, as opposed to Hollywood. But recognizing and realizing that God really has things to achieve through story with us as humanity has sort of helped us turn the corner and really lean into the fact that we, we must be part of this industry in order to see some of these narratives come to fruition. Mm. And you're telling these stories, aren't you? And you're producing these stories. And it, it, what's, what's amazing is to see the way that now you're, rather than you having to be chosen by a director, you're choosing your, you chose your own director for Selma. Um, and now you're producing these films yourself. So you can choose the direct, and the stories that you tell. Like Captive, you were both in Captive, I think. And that was an amazing story. Another redemptive story. Yeah, I think, you know, when we as Christians say we should be the head and not the tail, you know, we sort of reel that off uh, as almost a, a biblical cliche. But I think, it's, I think it's absolutely God's heart, you know, and the reason being that if we are going to be fishers of men, if we are going to be salt in the earth, if we are going to be a light upon a hill, we have to be the ones driving the narrative because if we are indeed hearing from God we have to be the conduit through which he speaks and if we don't have the infrastructure or the tools to do that the narrative will inevitably be hijacked by others who not even necessarily from a satanic or demonic point of view just a worldly secular point of view that doesn't reflect the heart of God and so you know for for us um, personally, we take that responsibility seriously. So, yes, uh, that was an eventuality with Selma. It's not something I set out to do. The first 
director in Selma rejected me. Five directors later, I had a hand in picking the director. And that was a lesson learned that we have gone on to continue to apply that who gets to tell the story matters to what the story eventually and ultimately will be. I mean, you're both so passionate about justice and, and you have been for, for a very long time, but it feels like in the last few weeks since, since the brutal murder of George Floyd, like something's happened to you. It's like that it's, it's cause when I interviewed you at the, the Royal Albert Hall, you were quite muted when you talked about your, the racism towards your father, uh, towards yourself. Uh, whereas now listening to some of the things that you've been saying in the last few weeks, it feels like some of that emotion that was almost like was pushed down is really coming out in the things that, that, that you're saying. I think exactly, that's exactly right. And what, what Jess is saying is, is, a, is 100% correct as well. I think even in you know, the last time we spoke uh, for the event at the Royal Albert Hall, these things are centuries old, both uh, here in the States and in the UK. But there was something about that, the imagery of seeing George Floyd murdered that I think just opened people's eyes, ears and hearts. I also think that the pandemic has softened our hearts because we've all had to entertain struggle. We've all had to entertain uncertainty. We've all had to stop for a time and we have less distractions because so many of the things we do to remain distracted have been taken away from us, whether it's restaurants, movies, you know, sports, whatever it may be. And I think it's just, it's just enabled, we are in a state of reflection in 2020, I think as well. And so, you know, it, it's one of, the, one of the, the biggest struggles as a black person, and I would say this is exactly the same both in America and in the UK and in a lot of countries in the world, is that you are consistently and constantly made to feel crazy. You're, you're made to feel like what you're saying is playing the race card or being overly angry or being overly sensitive or that was then and this is now. Why don't you just move on? And these are things you are living in the moment and you recognize them as huge challenges that you're having to overcome, but you also buy into the narrative of just get on with it. And I would argue that the UK is more guilty of this than, than the US um, of, of chin up, you know, keep, keep calm and carry on, all that kind of stuff. And so the, the, the vocalization we as black and brown people feel able to have and feel implored to have at this moment is because we can feel there is just that bit much more receptivity to what we have to say. And if, if people will link arms with us and say that there are things that are unacceptable, that have gone on for so long, that must stop, then maybe there's a chance that we as humanity will be able to move on from this deep evil. Yeah, something spiritual has happened. I, I know you yeah. feel it, Nikki. Something has shifted spiritually yeah. for this moment to yeah. happen. And it's, black people have been saying this forever. Now white people, who are the demographic that have been beneficiaries of this system of oppression, now that white people are speaking up alongside the black voices, it gives it a galvanizing effect of great power. And 
it's anointed. It's just, it, there's no two ways about it. There is an anointed moment. This is a Kairos moment right now for change. And because the voices and because of unity, you know, Jesus talked so much about unity. This is his goal for us is to be one with him and with God and with one another. Therefore, there is a deep power, a deep spiritual power and anointing on what is happening right now as we, as we join our voices. I think that's I think that's what gives I, gives me hope when you go out you go to the the marches there are as many white people as black people on the marches I don't yeah. think that was true was it, it for Martin Luther King were there, were there as many it, white it's, people? Not, it's it's not been true Ever. as far as I can tell in the history of humanity certainly not in America I would argue not in the UK and certainly not across the world. Um, because it has so often been black people marching, making, writing gospel songs, having our leaders killed, fighting civil wars, you know, um, uh, over it, and and it it it, it, it always being a black problem rather than a human problem, yeah. and that does feel like something new. Which again is the Kairos moment, is the anointed moment is the new moment that we're in. I think, I mean, I think the awakening for me has been uh, a realization of the prayers that we pray for our children are different. You know, that we never had to pray that our children wouldn't be stabbed, you know, or wouldn't be arrested by the police um, and, uh, you know, or whatever. Would, you know, the, the, those kind of prayers that people say to us, this is what we pray for our children. Our prayers are different from your prayers. Right. Um, that is, that. Every time David goes on a run, our whole marriage, particularly since living in the US, I would silently and subconsciously pray that he would come back alive just for going for a jog. Yeah. A black man running through a neighborhood does something to racist people. Yeah. They assume things. And when Ahmad Aubrey was shot because he was out for a run in a neighborhood, I was then able to articulate, I have been praying that prayer for years, but it was a subconscious prayer. Yeah. Now I can, I yeah. can say this is this is the truth. This is what has been going on for for hundreds of years. We have to do something very actively to to start the change, and it's going to take years yeah. to yeah. act to change. Yeah. But it has to start right now. Yeah. 